This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up, we're at Rest Park to discover the story of its mysterious Mithraic glade and altar. I think it's particularly significant that the one at rest is just so elusive and and mysterious and and actually why I think even today, if you don't know anything about the Athenian letters or the group that were here in the mid-18th century, it really is just quite a bizarre addition to the landscape. We'll find out about the project to unearth the secrets of its associated root house. Well, it's also been called a hermitage and they were effectively a rather small sort of hut made out of roots, branches, offcuts of timber and usually thatched. And we'll learn what it was used for. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget you can catch up with any missed episodes via your podcast feed and we have new episodes every Thursday. Now, this week we're in Bedfordshire at Rest Park. This estate is home to a 19th-century French-inspired Grade 1 listed mansion, surrounded by 90 acres of beautifully landscaped gardens. And this is where we have come to discover the story of its former root house, following an archaeological dig to unearth its secrets. And I'm first meeting senior properties historian Dr Andrew Han, who's going to explain more. You've brought me to the sundial. And this is probably, I guess, the most central place that we could have met, really. What are we looking at? Well, we're here at the sundial, which is the only surviving element, really, of the old house at rest. The old house was just behind us, and 300 yards further back is the new house, which is built in the 1830s. But what we're interested today is looking at the 18th century history of the site, and particularly its its gardens, which are spread out in front of us, the, the Great Woodland Garden. The gardens really date back to the mid-17th century and were majorly extended in the early 18th century by the Duke of Kent and he laid out these woodland gardens, two blocks of woodland on either side of the long water there and each of these woodland blocks contains a number of rides and avenues, both straight rides and also sinuous paths and also a number of little clearings which are often studded with statuary or monuments and so forth. And one of those is the Mithraic Glade, which we're going to look at today. And we can just see some statues around us as well at the moment, which I guess is a forebear of what we're about to see perhaps when we go down there. Indeed, yes. These are some of the 19th century statues that were brought to the site by Earl de Grey. But yes, the whole of the site is, is filled with lots of different statues, urns, and small monuments that are scattered around the gardens. Yeah, beautiful landscape and everything is very, very symmetrical. But we can't walk symmetrically down to the glade because we'll be walking on the grass and uh, we don't want to ruin the grass. So we'll go down one of these paths, shall we? Yes, we'll go down one of these horseshoe paths here which will take us round and down by the pavilion and then we can sweep round to the right and that will bring us to the glade. Okay, let's go. Okay, heading on to the grass. So I think we've just seen some wildlife, Andrew. What, what was that that was yeah. darting across left to right? I think that was, that was a muntjac deer. It looked like it was chasing after a pheasant. So we have quite a lot of wildlife in the, uh, in the gardens down here at the bottom area of the garden where it's a little more sort of secluded. And uh, there are lots of deer. We have lots of birds and obviously pheasants from the nearby chute as well. And if we look behind us over our right shoulder, we can see the house far in the distance now. How, how far have we travelled walking? About half a mile away almost now, yeah. Right. We've, we've really come quite some distance. 
And what we're looking at in front of us right now, what is that building with the sort of St Paul's style dome and it almost looks like a, a short rocket? <laughs> yes, that, that's, that's, um, that's the pavilion which was built by Thomas Archer in the early 18th century, about 1709 to 11. And it's really a feature of the garden. It's a focus for a lot of the avenues and rides that cut through the woodland quarters in this part of the garden. And it really was a sort of prestigious garden building when it's built. It's a banqueting house, effectively. Yeah, it's beautiful. I can imagine people sitting out there in the summer having cocktails, canapes, that sort of thing. Yeah, well, they used to take tea in there and there were tea tables, lots of chairs and there was even a, a kitchen downstairs and a two-seater privy so you could effectively live there if you wanted to yeah it's, it's a big house really i it mean is. it's you know it's almost like a wing of the other house at the end well should we carry on yes we'll and on uh, we'll head on to, towards the glade yes we're gonna have to cross this garden it's a little uh, little wet now because of the rain we had overnight but uh hopefully we'll be all right We haven't got far to go now, just round the other side of this tree. Looking up at the trees, actually, what strikes me is, is that foliage or is that all bird's nests? That's mistletoe. Is it? Loads of it, yes. Oh, wow. Yes, we, we do chop some down and, and sell it in the shop, but there's so much of it that, uh, yes, we could make a fortune if we, uh, if we sold all of that. So we've basically sort of come back on ourselves, but into the woodland, really along this slightly uh, muddy path. We're just arriving, and this is the glade, I presume. Can you describe the area that we're in? From the looks of things, underneath our our wet feet, we've got what appears to be some very brown oak leaves that have fallen into the mud. Well, we've got a whole series of trees around here. There looks like a sort of a ring of oak trees around the outside of the glade. There's also a few yews there as the entrance as we come in. There's one sort of solitary, rather small fir tree there in the centre. And just in front of it, of course, is the Mithraic altar. The Mithraic altar, this mysterious Mithraic altar. I want to discover more about this, so we'll get a bit closer to it. Mm, Perhaps we can uh, get a sense of the scale of it. It looks about something like nine feet tall. It is rather impressive in scale, isn't it? Yeah, we've got... It's a very sort of rustic-looking structure, and you know it's got flint embedded in the sides of it. It's got these great sort of lion's claws feet at each corner, and the sort of like fairly sort of ruinous-looking plinth at the top there. It looks almost as if it's an antiquity. It looks like it is, but I understand that it's not. But I also understand that there's someone who can tell us a bit more about it, and I think she's peeking around the corner. She is. Yes, it's my uh, my PhD student Jemima. I'm Jemima Hubbersty and I'm a PhD student looking at the landscape at Rest Park in the mid-18th century and its connection to the group's interest in literature at this time period as well and how the two interact with each other. Jemima, it's a very large structure, about nine feet tall, something like that, and probably about seven feet by seven feet wide. It's a sort of cube sort of shape. Can you tell me when it was built then? It was built in 1748. And why? Well, the owners of Rest Park in the mid-18th century, Jemima Gray and Philip York, they had a group of friends and they were really interested in the classics and they wrote the Athenian letters together, which was basically in homage to their classical interests. And so the Mithraic altar was built to commemorate the completion of the Athenian letters. And because it had been such an integral part of their group, uh, it was also really to commemorate their friendship as well. And um, actually one of the members of the group said it was almost coined there to commemorate absent friends. Oh, I see. So it was almost like they were in a book club. They had some friends round. They took tea every so often. Yep. I presume they came down to this area. 
and, yeah. and, and worked on their literary project. Yep, yeah, absolutely. In some of the letters we can see they were reciting poems to one another in, in the woodland. So for them, the literature and the landscape at rest really intertwined. And why is it called Mithraic? Does that relate to a particular god? Yes, absolutely. So in the Athenian letters, the main character, Cleander, is a believer of Mithraicism. And so really, the whole Mithraic glade is an honour to Cleander and his religion. Right. So this is a real sort of exercise in fans of the classics, Homer, the Iliad, all this sort of thing, getting together, writing some fiction, and then creating a monument to their work. Absolutely, yeah. That's exactly what's going on. That's fascinating. So I suppose in modern terms, we might call it an exercise in fan fiction. Oh, absolutely. It was started at Cambridge and they even had their tutors getting involved on it. So it was really a load of history nerds all getting together and writing a series of letters about their favourite periods in history. If we turn to the right here and just head a little bit this way, we can see that there is what appears to be Greek lettering on there. Is that genuine Greek and is it decipherable? Yes, so one of the members, Daniel Ray, was responsible for the lettering. So on this side we have the ancient Greek, which roughly translates as it is built in honour to Cleander and, and Mithras. On the other side is cuneiform, but that one's not decipherable because they copied it from a book of travels, but at the time they didn't know what it meant either, so it was all copied out in the wrong order. So actually it doesn't mean anything, but it was meant to parallel ancient Persia and ancient Athens, which is essentially the two cultures that the Athenian letters explore. Was this monument also a little bit of a joke to perhaps future generations if they stumbled upon Rest Park? And Oh, absolutely. In their letters they discuss how much fun they're having, just watching people trying to decipher it. They have antiquarians from all around the country coming to visit. They're drawing the inscriptions, they're taking it back to their friends, they're all pouring through their books at home trying to see if they can find the source for it. And the coterie themselves just know that it's just relating to their own fictional work. So it really is an in-joke and they have a lot of fun with it. So this book, The Athenian Letters, how long is it and does it still exist today? You can get copies today. Originally there were four volumes and they were printed in 1741 and 1743. But the emphasis here is that they were printed, not published. So actually there were only 12 copies, one for each of the contributors. So actually it wasn't widely accessible at the time. People couldn't just get their hands on a copy. So it makes it even more of an in-joke that only the 12 contributors would actually know what is going on here. Right. It sounds like they're really in their own virtual reality world, creating this sort of little fiction in, within these natural surroundings. It's, it's interesting, I must say. <laughs> it's certainly creative. Oh yeah, definitely. And I think especially compared to other public landscapes where everybody's trying to identify all the classical statues and they know what's happening, I think it's particularly significant that the one at rest is just so elusive and, and mysterious and, and actually why I think even today if you don't know anything about the Athenian letters or the group that were here in the mid-18th century it really is just quite a bizarre addition to the landscape. But there's more to this glade than meets the eye it's not just the fact that we've got this Mithraic altar this nine foot tall flint and stone structure there was also supposedly a kind of a house here and if I could bring in Andrew, perhaps we can talk a little bit more about this fabled root house. What is a root house? Well, a root house is, well, it's also 
been called a hermitage. Quite often they were called hermitages. And they were effectively a rather small sort of hut made out of roots, branches, offcuts of timber, and usually thatched. And they were basically designed as a place of sort of solitude and contemplation. It was very much to do with this idea of the melancholy garden where you'd go for quiet contemplation, which was very popular at this point of the mid-18th century. It's for a relatively short period. These were springing up all over the country. That's really interesting. So it's a bit like a den, I suppose. A little bit like that, but what was really important was the fact that it had to look rustic. It had to look almost as if it was coming out of nature itself. The idea it was made entirely out of natural materials, not you know hard surfaces of stone or, or brick or whatever. And they really weren't built to last. They were really ephemeral structures because they were thrown together sometimes. I mean, the one at rest here was built in only a matter of a couple of weeks. And so they were built out of the very roots and branches of the trees around us. Can you take me to the location where the root house would have actually been? I certainly can, yes. Come this way. So we're going to head past back to where we came from the entrance. Squelching in the mud, as you do. (laughs) As you see in front of us there, you can see a couple of yew trees, or three yew trees in fact, and the root house was positioned just in front of those those trees there. That's, That's quite a wide space then. We've been looking for the foundations of it and we think it sort of comes up from about where I'm standing to about where that tree stump is over there. So, it's so that's about, what, 20-odd feet? Something yeah, like something that. like that. It's not an insubstantial structure in terms of size, but we know about it primarily through a couple of illustrations that we've got from the early 19th century and they show a sort of a fairly sort of rectangular structure with a thatched roof and a doorway at the front and and possibly a window on one side. But yes, it's probably a one-room structure. Uh, Whenabouts was it built? It was built in 1749, so only really a year after the altar. And it's designed as being like the habitation for the priest of the altar is the sort of conceit around its construction. The coterie are very much sort of wanting to sort of create this space as a sort of mysterious glade. And they're all interested in, you know, sort of ideas of druids and mysticism. So this is all sort of part of that same sort of insight that's linked with what Jermaine was just saying about the altar. It's almost like um, Lord of the Rings meets the classics. I can imagine this sort of gnarly building sort of taking shape and sort of growing out of the ground in a way. Exactly, that's exactly the, the impression they were trying to give. I mean, the inside of it was decorated with moss and sort of mud pushed in to sort of fill the gaps in the... And it had this floor which was made out of pebbles, this sort of mosaic pavement of pebbles, which was sort of cemented in. And then there was a sort of pattern picked out in them made out of horses' teeth and pigs' trotters. And then the whole surface was then varnished with some sort of like a dark varnish to create a sort of really sort of earthy feel to it. And of course we're standing here today and the only evidence we have of something having been here is the fact that archaeologists have been down here and dug up the ground. So those are the clues, I guess, uh, from what we can see in front of us, that they've been doing some digging. And you mentioned the fact that they knew that there were pictures of the house, Mm -hmm. but how did they know where to dig? Well, at the time of the second drawing was done, which was by Earl de Grey, the owner of Rest at the time in the 1830s, he also provided a little map which showed the garden layout at that point. So he gives a sort of general location for it. And then what we did, we had our geophysics team from Historic England came in and did a a coverage over the whole of the glade, and they picked out some areas of high resistance in this sort of part of the glade, which corresponded with the general area where we thought the root house might be. So we got them to put a couple of trenches in, sort of a cross of trenches, so going both north, south and east-west, to see what they could find. And they hit foundation material. Sadly, we didn't have a a lovely preserved mosaic pavement with lots of horses' teeth stuck in it, but we did have lots of 
foundation rubble for what must have been the sides of the root house. Let's go back to who built it exactly. And were they popular at the time? They were very popular and they were very lucky here in that one of the members of the coterie was a gentleman called Thomas Edwards. So he was part of their inner circle. And as well as being a a poet and critic and intellectual, he was also a builder of these ephemeral garden buildings. He'd built quite a number of them at his own house at Turrick in Buckinghamshire. He'd built a rook's nest, a hermitage, a, a sort of rustic seat. So he was very familiar with the construction techniques and so... Philip and Jemima asked him to come and build a root house for them here at rest. Do we know how long it took him to build? Well, from the letters that we've got, there are lots of surviving letters of Jemima's which describe the construction, and and we think it was only sort of a matter of two or three weeks. And she actually comments on the fact that some building work at the house by the renowned architect Henry Flickcroft was taking a lot longer than the work that uh, Edwards was doing here. You talked about some of the special features, the moss and all the bark and bracken and all this sort of thing. But did the um, appearance of it change over time? It did indeed. I and mean, we think, you know, the illustrations that we have of it from the mid-19th century or the early 19th century, those seem to show a much more sort of solid-looking structure that looks like a sort of a, almost like a masonry structure. And we do know from the accounts that Amabel, Countess de Grey, in the early 19th century had to make major repairs to the building, which is not surprising. This is an ephemeral structure. It's not supposed to last. So we're assuming that she sort of made it use sort of bricks or masonry to sort of repair the building and give it a longer life than it would have otherwise have had. Was that work enough to keep it going for a while? Because obviously it didn't survive. We're standing at the site here where it is no longer. We don't know exactly when it disappeared. We know that it was here in 1830-ish, but it certainly wasn't here in 1899 when we have a tour of the gardens written by a local uh, clergyman and at that point there's no mention of the building so it's clearly gone by then. So at some point in the 19th century this thing is taken down and when the archaeologist had a look it's been pretty much cleared away. All we can find is the foundations, we can't find any of the structure itself so it's clearly been removed quite thoroughly. Did you get on your hands and knees and start scrubbing with toothbrushes and and that sort of thing? I didn't personally, but I did come and visit while the archaeologists were here and and it was quite fascinating to see what they did discover. There was quite a lot of brick and stone rubble quite across the area with some quite clear edges to it. It looked like foundations. And then there were just a tantalising few little cobbles and, and bits of bone which they've taken away for analysis and we're really hoping they might turn out to be part of that mosaic floor. And we've got some quite detailed descriptions of the floor and the fact they used this cement which was based on a recipe from Alexander Pope which included a serum of blood. We're really just keeping our fingers crossed that you know what they're going to be able to find from the scientific analysis of the material they've taken away. Sounds very inspired by antiquity with those sort of horse's blood and very natural and uh, Indeed, yeah. Well, um, one of Jemima's friends, Catherine Tolbert, described it as a tartar's den in a letter, a slightly humorous letter that she'd sent to her friend. And I, I think that is very much, you know, this idea, this sort of ancient mysticism and really sort of primitivism associated with it that is exactly the sort of tone that the coterie wanted to create around this part of the gardens. What does the root house... And its excavation tell us about its story. Well, it tells us, it gives us some clear ideas of the dimension of the building. Um, we are getting some clear ideas of its foundations, how it was built. And it also opens up quite a lot of conundrums because the structure that we found doesn't relate that clearly to the structure that is described by Jemima as Thomas Edwards' building, you know, which is all very much natural materials, roots and branches and moss and whatever. And obviously, those wouldn't have left a, a physical evidence but we don't find the sort of post holes for those in the ground so we we're, we're sort of 
toying with the idea that obviously it's been altered and modified at some point. Are there any other root houses in existence or is this site unique? There are a number of surviving 18th century root houses. Possibly the best preserved is one at Badminton where we visited recently and they have a root house which was built by Thomas Wright who interestingly was tutor to Jemima and so many of her friends so there was a connection with rest there and that was built in 1750 so almost about the same time this was being built and that actually survives in pretty good condition it really is made of you know sort of roots and branches and little blocks of offcuts of wood sort of pushed in with two sort of boughs of a tree forming a sort of arch for the doorway and we do know from talking to some of the people there that when they did some survey work on it they discovered it does actually have a timber frame so it's a little bit of a cheat it has got a sort of structural timber frame around which these are the roots and branches are, are laid to create the structure so the roots don't form the the structural thing that's holding the building together but they are the majority of the material of which it's made so yeah if we could create something like that that would be fantastic english heritage do like to restore and recreate where they can and sometimes we see things in different time periods it sounds to me from what you just said there that you'd like to do a recreation of this root house in the same spot We would indeed. I mean, it it would be really nice to be able to recreate the full sense of what the Mithraic Glade was actually like. So we'd like to sort of replant it and and redo the setting, but also to rebuild this root house, which was obviously an integral part of the setting with the altar, which looks rather sort of lonely on its own there at the moment. And it would be really nice to do it as sort of a case study in experimental archaeology, because there's not many of these that have been attempted to recreate them. So if we could sort of try and use the original materials, the roots, branches and moss and whatever, to try and create something, I think it'd be a really exciting project. And I think exciting for visitors to um, explore. Indeed, yes. I mean, we may even be able to get members of the public involved in helping with the project. It, it's a sort of exciting sort of thing that could get the public's imagination. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. For more about Rest Park or to plan a visit, head to the English Heritage website. Next week, ahead of Valentine's Day, we investigate an alleged romance involving Queen Elizabeth I. He is her favourite, and that aroused a certain amount of jealousy, but it was fairly well known, and she doesn't seem to have done a great deal for much of her life to do anything to dispel that. Thanks for listening. See you next time.